Good evening. Just wanted to give my thanks to Dave Temple for this morning. Um, such a helpful passage, and he did a great job. And it's amazing how the Spirit just, this sermon's just intertwined, because we didn't talk at all, but we're going to be in another gospel this evening, the Gospel of John. Please open your Bibles to John chapter 4. But the connections between what Dave taught this morning and, and what we're going to be in tonight, only the Spirit could do that. So just looking forward to that. Let's pray to open up our time in the Word as you turn to John 4. Father, it is a tremendous blessing that we get to gather as a body to study the deep and abundant and rich truths that are contained in your Word. We are, Lord, so dependent upon you for any spiritual life, any understanding. And so we praise you for your Son who has granted us life and for your Spirit who has regenerated us. And Lord, we have your truth, so we praise you and thank you. Lord, we want to live in such a way that is honoring to you. We want to grow in our understanding of you so that we may worship you more deeply and more fully. We pray that that would occur this evening. Be glorified this evening through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I don't know if you're like me, but sometimes I can be prone to become, you could call it cynical of certain people when it comes to the possibility of salvation. Uh, it could be the hardness of, of the heart of the person that I may be talking to that could lead to my cynicism. It could be their complete blindness to anything spiritual that can cause me to become cynical. But sometimes if I'm honest, sometimes the cynicism just comes down to someone's background. It's just, they're just different than me. But the irony of that is really rich because the Lord chose to save me as a wretched prodigal, you know, who had deceived myself for so many years. So the fact that I would become cynical is ridiculous. I think that cynicism can sometimes be where our heart goes, our heart can go though, when it comes to the salvation of the lost. We can get to the point where we can think of someone as being hopeless, beyond saving. And of course, we don't come out and say that, you know, we know too much to do that, but our, our actions prove that to be the case. I mean, sometimes we just give up. Sometimes we may lose our fervency in giving someone the truth as we often would. Uh, or we just withhold the gospel entirely from someone because we have some preconceived idea of how they will, re will respond to it. I mean, if you're prone to be cynical that there are uh, people who are too far gone to be saved or too different to be saved, then, then I pray that this account tonight in John 4 will reset our thinking. Because jo uh, Jesus... In this account, he reaches out to a woman who, by worldly standards, was far too gone and way too sinful to be saved. Jesus reaches out to her anyway. This is going to show us that there's no one too far gone to be saved. Praise the Lord. He reaches into the hearts of those who we would think are impossible to reach, and he rescues those that we can tend to sinfully look down on in our hearts. Nowhere is this truth better illustrated than in this account of the woman at the well. Now, before we begin verse 1, I'm going to apologize to you in advance because I'm going to try to get through verses 1 to 42 of John 4. I'm going to try to get you out before the morning. Uh, I certainly will not be able to scratch every theological itch you may have when we come across some of these because there are some rich truths in this account. 
Uh, but I do pray that at the end, you'll be able to understand this passage and understand the reasons why John included it in this gospel and, and why it is so important to, for us to see how Jesus approached someone who in the eyes of the world was an outcast. Now, before we jump into John 4, let me bring you up to speed as to where we are in this account because there's some connections to chapter 2 and chapter 3 that we cannot miss. Last week, if you were here, uh, we looked at how Jesus cleaned out the temple. That was his first cleansing, and that occurred at the beginning of his ministry. And do you remember how the Jews responded to that? They re responded in unbelief and mockery. By contrast, the disciples responded in faith. They responded with belief. They were reminded of truth. They were reminded of the scriptures when they saw what Jesus did in the temple. Now, right after that account in John 2.23, it says this. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name, observing his signs which he was doing. And this is a very interesting passage here. He says, verse 24, but Jesus on his part was not entrusting himself to them. He wasn't believing them. He wasn't believing their belief, for he knew all men. And because he did not need anyone to testify concerning man, because he knew what was in man. So you have people who profess to be believers who, who are genuine, and there are people who profess to be believers who are not genuine. And Jesus knows the difference between the two. Now notice in verse 25, there's a repetition of a word there that is important to see. Did not need anyone to, set, to testify concerning man, for he who he himself knew what was in man. And now look at chapter 3, verse 1. Lo and behold, what do we have? We have a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus. So you have Jesus saying, I know the hearts of all men. And now you have a man named Nicodemus, and he's a ruler of the Jews. So in Nicodemus, you have someone who is at the top of the religious ladder in Judaism. He's, he's well off. He is well respected. He is very knowledgeable of the law. He's so knowledgeable to the point where Jesus calls him in verse 10 of chapter 3. He says he is the teacher of Israel. So Nicodemus was considered to be at the highest level of understanding and instruction in the land of Israel. He was at the top of the ladder. But Jesus gives him a stinging rebuke in verse 12, which exposed the true heart of Nicodemus. He said, if I told you earthly things and you don't believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? Jesus exposes the top of the top of the Jewish religious ladder as an unbeliever, at least at this point in his life, if church history is accurate. This is proving what Jesus said in John chapter 1. Jesus came to his own people. He came to the Jews and his own did not receive him. So chapter 3 then moves on to some more explanation from the, from the Apostle John. A discussion about John the Baptist. And then another explanation from John where he discusses true and false belief. And that leads us into chapter 4. I know that was really fast. But verses 1 through 4 mark a transition in this gospel. Take a look at verse 1 of chapter 4. It says, Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were, 
He left Judea and went away again into Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So the disciples of Jesus are, are baptizing right alongside of John the Baptist's disciples. The Pharisees get wind of it. Remember that Jesus knows they will destroy him one day, right? That we saw that back in chapter two. But his hour had not yet come. He was at the beginning of his ministry. And so to avoid a confrontation, Jesus takes his disciples. They leave Judea in the south and they start to head north to Galilee. However, in between Judea and Galilee, you have Samaria. There were many different ways to get to Galilee from Judea, but going through Samaria would be the quickest route. But it did appear that many Jews avoided Samaria because they didn't like the Samaritans very much and vice versa. They despised each other. And the hostility goes back 700 years to the conquering of the Assyrians, the, the, the conquering of Israel by the Assyrians. The Assyrians, when, when the Assyrians had conquered Israel, they, they took many Jews captive, but they, let, they left some in the land and then they interspersed some of their own people in with the Jews. And then they got married. And so you had Gentiles mixed with Jews. You had what the Jews would consider to be half-breeds. The religion got mixed. So the prejudice between the Jews and the Samaritans went back a long way. It's interesting, though, that Jesus does not care at all about the historical animosity between the Jews and the Samaritans. He, he goes right through Samaria to Galilee, and he, John records this account, and, and we know from the Apostle John that Jesus has a divine appointment in Samaria. Look at verse 5. So he came to a city of Samaria called Sychar, near the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph, and Jacob's well was there. And so Jesus, being wearied from his journey, was sitting thus by the well, and it was about the sixth hour. John is, is very deliberate in, in, in his language here. He says that Jesus came to this city called Sychar, and he mentions the field that Jacob gave to Joseph, as well as the well that Joseph had, Jacob had dug, excuse me, so the allusions back to the early Jewish patriarchs is, is pretty obvious here. A tradition also tells us that Joseph's tomb was near there. Now the journey from where Jesus probably was down in Judea up to the town of Sychar was about 20 miles. And it was not an easy 20 miles. It's up and down. It's over rocky terrain. So that means that Jesus and his disciples had most likely been walking at a very brisk pace for the entire morning. As a result, our Lord is very weary, and the language talks about he is, he is spent, he is exhausted. He's so weary that he just sits down on the ground next to the well, and he's probably leaning against the well. And this happened at noontime. That's what the sixth hour is. And so the heat of the sun is right overhead. It's beating down on him. This is just an incredible example of the, the humanity of Jesus. He was tired and thirsty, just like we become tired and thirsty. That leads us into verse 7. Let me just briefly, uh, right here, give you an outline, just to hang your thoughts on as we walk through the rest of this passage. And in this encounter with the woman at the well, uh, the Apostle John provides five dramatic scenes that reveal the substance of genuine salvation. You could replace that word salvation with worship. That would work here as well. 
five scenes that reveal the substance of genuine worship or salvation. But as I give you that outline, let me give you a little caveat, because what we saw last week in John 2 also applies here. We have an, an immediate theme, a more immediate theme in this passage of a pure worship, true belief, genuine salvation. But all of that immediate theme is superseded by a broader theme of the fact that Jesus is the Messiah. And that was what John set out to prove in this gospel. We'll see that in a few places here in John 4, but just realize the fact that you have these, these two themes. You have the immediate theme of pure worship and salvation, but the broader theme of the fact that Jesus is who he said he is. Okay, our first scene here begins in verse 7, and that is the encounter. The encounter. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Therefore, the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink, since I am a Samaritan woman? For the Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Now stop there for a second, because I want you to grasp just how shocking those verses are. Might not seem shocking to us, but they were shocking at the time. So first, this woman is coming at noontime to draw water, right in the heat of the day. Uh, normally, the woman of the town would come when uh, it was later on in the day, so the sun wasn't beating down on them. That's when they would come to draw water. But this woman comes at a time when the other women don't come. So already you get the impression that there's something different about this woman. She's probably not very well liked. She's a bit of an outcast, even amongst her own people in Samaria. We'll find out why in a little bit. But this woman is not someone that the people in the town interact with. She is shunned. Now, that's maybe not so shocking. What is shocking is what Jesus does, because he asks her for a drink. <laughs> this is just, this was not done back in that time. Men did not talk to women in public at all, not even their wives. So this was already a massive breach of etiquette in that culture. But even more shocking than that is that this is a Samaritan woman. The Jews despise the Samaritans, as I mentioned earlier. And you can see that at the end of verse 9, right? The Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. So this person that Jesus is talking to and asks for a drink, uh, this person has three strikes against her, at least in Jewish eyes. First, she's a woman. Second, she's a Samaritan. And third, she is an outcast. And as we will see, she's an outcast as a result of her sin. She's rejected by her own people. She's rejected by the Samaritans. And she's also rejected by those who were not her people, the Jews. So she's a double outcast, you could say. Nobody in the world likes her. Now contrast her with Nicodemus back in chapter 3. Nicodemus was an arch-Pharisee. He was a man who was honored. He was a Jew, and he was most certainly not considered to be a sinner. He would have been considered to be a, a pillar of morality in Jewish culture. It's interesting, too, that Nicodemus came by night and sought out Jesus. <laughs> this woman didn't seek him at all. Jesus confronted Nicodemus and exposed him and showed him his desperate need for rebirth. Jesus showed Nicodemus his need for the Messiah. 
And in response, here's Nicodemus' last words in John 3. He says, how can these things be? That is the preeminent Jew's response to Jesus. How can these things be? Unbelief. Later on, we will see this Samaritan's woman's response to Jesus. But, but the contrast is unavoidable. Jesus is showing that those who are of the highest religious pedigree, those who are really moral, they still need Christ. He's also showing that the most despised and sinful and spiritually ignorant outcast also needs Christ. You, you must be born again if you wish to have eternal life. And it doesn't matter which camp you fall in. Now, unlike us, Jesus does not show favorites. He has no prejudice. His offer of salvation comes to all. And we all know John 3.16, right? For God so loved the world. Every human has been made in God's image and every human has an eternal soul. Jesus asking this woman for a drink was a massive breach of cultural norms. But he didn't care. Tradition, <laughs> culture, that didn't matter to Jesus. He knew this woman's deepest need and he was willing to go and meet it. It's a good question to ask ourselves. I mean, are we willing to do the same for those that we might consider to be social outcasts? Do they need the gospel? Right. Now, wisdom should, of course, guide us, but do we sometimes move away from people that we consider to be lower than us instead of toward them? Verse 10. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. She said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? You're not greater than our father Jacob, are you, who gave us the well and drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle? And Jesus answered and said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst. But the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up, to eternal life. Jesus tells this outcast woman, you have no idea who you're talking to and you don't even know the questions to ask. You have no idea the immeasurable gift that you could receive from the Lord if only you would ask him. This is a very revealing passage because with one sentence, Jesus tells this woman as well as us that he has the ability to give someone the gift of God. Now, this must be a very unique man that this woman is talking to, though she doesn't know it yet. And he even specifies what it is that he could give her. What is this gift of God? At the end of verse 10, he says, he would have given you living water. Now, this statement for living water is ironic in and of itself, because back in those times, they, they sometimes thought of living water as uh, just moving water, right? So she may have interpreted Jesus' words as being, ah, it's just a river or a stream that he's talking about. It's interesting that she's thinking on earthly terms because she is blind to spiritual matters and probably didn't hear that whole statement that this is the gift of God. 
You know, Nicodemus is no different, right? When, when Jesus told him that he must be born again, Nicodemus didn't think of spiritual matters. He thought of, well, how can I re-enter my mother's womb and, and be reborn? That's impossible. He thought physical. He thought earthly. It's interesting that Nicodemus was just as blind to spiritual realities as the Samaritan woman is, a woman that he would have absolutely despised, yet they're both in the same camp. In verse 11, it appears that the woman thinks that Jesus is trying to poke fun at her. And she responds with what might be a bit of incredulity, maybe a bit of sarcasm. She might even be offended. You don't have a bucket to get water. It, it, the well is deep. What are you talking about with this living water? Jacob's our father. He gave us this well. You're saying you're greater than Jacob? By the way, Jacob's well still exists today. It's, it's in the basement of an Orthodox church in Palestine. You can still drink water from it today, 4,000 years later. The depth of the well is reduced over time. It's about 70 feet deep now, but at that time, it was probably more like 100 feet deep. It's a long way down. So think about this Samaritan woman. You can imagine how much of her life was spent coming to this well, dropping the bucket down 100 feet, pulling it up, filling up her big pitcher, dropping the bucket back down, pulling it up, filling up. I mean, it would have been time consuming. It would have been physically taxing. And she did this every day. Remember also, she's coming in the middle of the day, during the heat of the day, to avoid the other women. So if there's any other source of water... And this man knows about it. I, I want that water. Where do I get it? This is what she says in verse 15. Sir, give me this water so I won't be thirsty, nor come all the way here to draw. So she's thinking on earthly terms. She's thinking physical thirst. And it's almost like she's just kind of playing with the idea in her mind. One commentator says it like this. Well, it's nice to think that this might be possible, what this guy's saying. She might not have understood at the moment but, but we know that the living water that Jesus offers is, is far superior to any water you can get on this earth. As a matter of fact, it's infinitely superior to any water you could ever have on this earth. And there's a few notes of comparison here that I want you to, to look at and consider. First, notice that the woman talks about Jacob giving the well to them. But Jesus says that he could give her living water. So this is an example of the lesser to the greater. Jesus could, Jacob, excuse me, could only provide, you know, physical water from a well, but Jesus can give you living water. A second thing to note is that Jesus is the one who gives the water, as I noted earlier, and he's the only one who can give this water. Third, a comparison of the two waters is another example of the lesser to the greater. Living water is different than physical water because if you drink physical water, you will get thirsty again. But, but if you drink living water, you'll never thirst again. And you only need to drink it once. Also, living water produces eternal life, not just temporary life that physical water provides. Well, then that begs the question, right? Then what is living water? What is Jesus talking about? Well, there is a direct connection between living water and the Holy Spirit. Now, had this woman had spiritual understanding, she would have connected uh, living water and, and rivers of water to the Lord. But, 
It was interesting about the Samaritan religion. They held the Pentateuch as being from God and the rest of the scriptures they threw out. Her issue too also is she's spiritually blind and does not understand these things. But there are many verses in the Old Testament that connect the Lord to living water. Let me just read a few of them to you. Isaiah 12, chapter, uh, Isaiah 12, 3 talks about God's people joyously drawing water from the springs of salvation. Isaiah 55, 1. Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. Ezekiel 36 ties the sprinkling of clean water to the transformative work of the Holy Spirit in the new covenant. There's many others that we could turn to. So the concept of living water is not foreign or obscure when Jesus speaks of it. It is clear that living water is connected to God himself. And John actually makes a connection a little further over, which is helpful. He connects living water to the Holy Spirit. Look over at John 7.37. You can turn there or you can just listen. John 7.37. Now, on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. But, these, but this he spoke of the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for the Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. So when you think of living water, Think of the transformative work of the Holy Spirit in salvation. Think of regeneration and cleansing. You can turn back to John 4. The Samaritan woman didn't understand any of this. But, but if she thought that Jesus was a bit of a crackpot at this point, she wouldn't be thinking that with her, with her next interaction with him. And that leads us to our second scene. And that is the exposure. The exposure. The woman asked for living water in verse 15. In verse 16, Jesus gives us his response to her. He said to her, go, call your husband and come here. The tone of the conversation now shifts dramatically. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. All of a sudden, she's at a loss for words. Jesus said to her, you've correctly said, I have no husband, for you've had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband. This you have said truly. It's noon. You have to wonder if that woman feels like the sun is a big, gigantic spotlight shining right on her at this point. Right? She is exposed, and the Son of God is the one exposing her right now. You've had five husbands. And the one with whom you're living with now is not your husband. This would have been scandalous in that time. She's had five husbands and now she's living in immorality with someone who was not her husband. Now you see why she was such an outcast. Now you see why she was coming at noon to draw water. But Jesus is getting right to the heart of the matter here. Very interesting. She asked him for living water and what does he do? <laughs> this exposes her heart. And shows her what her biggest detriment is. The Samaritan woman does not understand her true need. Her true thirst is spiritual. 
And her problem is that she is spiritually dead because of her sin. And the only one that can help her is sitting down exhausted at a well. This is instructive for us, though, because it tells us that you must understand that you are a sinner in need of grace before you can receive the gift of living water from the hand of the Son of God. Notice also, remember back in verse 6, Jesus is weary and tired. And so that was a display of his humanity. Here in verse 18, though, <laughs> the fact that he could just cut, like, cut right through this woman's heart, pierce it, lay it bare, that's a display of his divinity. Just as the word of God lays the heart bare, so does the living word. This reminds us also that Jesus sees into the hearts of us all. The second Jesus exposed who this woman really was and how she really lived, she understood that he was no ordinary man. Verse 19. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. That's an understatement. Right? However, it's possible at this point she might be making a connection back to Deuteronomy 19 where Moses describes a greater prophet coming one day, which is a reference to the Messiah. It could be she's starting to think a little bit. Verse 20, our fathers worshiped in this mountain, and you people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Now, now we cannot know what this woman was thinking when she changed the subject here so dramatically. Perhaps she is genuinely interested in this man who has just exposed her, or perhaps she's just trying to change the subject, the subject to divert Jesus away from her sin, right? <laughs> Let's not talk about my sin anymore. Let's talk about... Oh, worship. What is interesting, though, is her view of worship. Because when she thinks of worship, she thinks of location. Our fathers, the Samaritans, we, we worship on this mountain. We worship on the mountain of Gerizim. But, but you people, the Jews, you say that in Jerusalem is the place where men should worship. So which one is right? Which one is it? Are, are we right? Or are you right? Verse 21. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming, and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Jesus does respond to her curiosity, but certainly not in the way she was expecting. Believe me, woman. You've called me a prophet. Believe me. I am telling you what is going to happen. There is coming a, a time very soon, and the hour is actually here because I'm here, when the true worshipers of Yahweh won't worship him on Gerizim or in Jerusalem. Notice that Jesus addresses God as the Father. Earlier in verse 11, uh, this woman had appealed to Jacob as the father of her people. Jesus is appealing to a much higher authority here, and, and she and the Samaritans were mistaken in their claim of Jacob as their father. Verse 22 would have thrown her for a loop, though. 
<laughs> you Samaritans, you are mistaken in your worship. You may be sincere and you may think you've been faithfully worshiping the one true God, but you have not been. You think you know God, but you do not. Why? Because salvation is from the Jews. The Jews have the scriptures. They have the prophets. They've received the oracles, the covenants, the law, the temple services, the promises. They, they know who God is. They have the whole Old Testament and they believe it. Even if their own worship at this point had become distorted and worldly. The end of verse 23 and verse 24 explain what Jesus meant by the fact that very soon true worshipers will not worship at a location because verse 24 says God is spirit. And those who worship him must, notice, must worship him in spirit and in truth. And these are the type of worshipers that the Lord is seeking. Those who worship in spirit and in truth. Even the Jews, even the ones who have been granted all of this privilege, they must understand that that is true worship. What Jesus is saying here is seismic. I mean, everything that uh, the Jews regarded and the people of that time regarded as, as being true worship had been going on for centuries. They had the temple. They had uh, the, the, the law. They had the sacrificial system. They had all of these things that were, they were so used to. It's amazing, though, because in Christ... <laughs> Through the true temple, as we saw last week, it won't matter where you worship. The only thing that matters is how you worship, because worshiping the Lord in spirit and in truth is not limited to location. God is spirit, right? And so we must worship him in the, the realm in which he is. It's the sphere. He, we worship in spirit and in truth. The old ways were just a shadow of what was to come. We now live under the law of liberty, the law of love. John explains that you must worship the Lord in spirit because God is spirit. He doesn't have a physical form, right? So Jesus is revealing truth about the Father. True worshipers worship in spirit. We must worship him in the sphere in which he exists. Otherwise, we're not really worshiping. Remember back to Nicodemus in John 3. Turn over to John 3 and look at verse 3. I wish I had three weeks. I'd love to teach this too. John 3, verse 3. Unless one is born again, here's Jesus saying this to Nicodemus, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. What does it mean? All right, look down at verse 6. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. And that which is born of the spirit is spirit. You cannot worship the Lord in the flesh. Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it. But do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the spirit. If you worship the Lord, you must worship him in spirit. It has to be internal. It has to be the inner man has to be transformational. You must be brought to life by the Holy Spirit. He must breathe life into your spirit. And the only way that you can be brought to life by the Holy Spirit is through the true temple, through the Son of God alone. So we must worship in spirit, but also in truth. And, and these two concepts are interchangeable, spirit and truth. 
The Holy Spirit is often referred to as the spirit of truth. Jesus himself is called the truth, right? John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. Jesus is full of grace and truth, John 1, 14. We also have the word of truth. Truth permeates our worship. The spirit of truth, the God's written word of truth and the living word of truth. This is profound. I mean, this is, this is just dense truth from the Lord here. The temple is no longer limited to location because the true temple is a person. And we worship the Lord in the spirit through the Son, And his word renews our hearts and minds. It's incredible. If you truly desire to worship the Lord, then this is how you must worship. If you go anywhere outside of this, you're not worshiping. Turn back over to John 4. So what is the Samaritan woman's response to this earth-shattering truth? Verse 25. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When that one comes, he will declare to us all things. She might be making some connections here. For, for as little as the Samaritans knew, they knew there was a Messiah coming, the ultimate prophet, and he will declare to us all truth, all things. It can't be that you are him, right? Verse 26, Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am. This is incredible because Jesus never openly declared to the Jews that he was the Messiah, except at the very end of his life at his trial. And he was had to be pressed to do so. He did make some intonations as to who he was, right? He did tell them at one time before Abraham was, I am. But throughout his entire ministry, Jesus withheld his identity from the Jews. He worked hard at it. But amazingly, he is willing to declare to an outcast Samaritan woman who he is, that he is the Messiah. It's even more than that, though. He's also declaring something about himself in this one little declaration. Notice there in your Bible that that word he there in verse 26 is in italics. It would read like this, I who speak to you am, I am. This goes back to Exodus 3.14 when, when Moses asked the Lord, who shall I tell them you are? And God said to Moses, Yahweh, I am who I am. This is the revered and holy name of God. This is Yahweh, the great I am. This is the Messiah. This is God in human flesh. Everything that exists was created through him. And he is sitting at a well in Palestine talking to a Samaritan woman and he's revealing all of this to her. I'm glad John recorded it. The woman's heart is now being stirred though. Maybe there is something to this living water that this man is talking about. Could this really be the prophesied Messiah? That brings us to our third scene. And that is the examination, the examination. Verse 27. At this point, his disciples came and they were amazed that he had been speaking with a woman. Yet no one said, who do you seek or why do you speak with her? So remember that the disciples had left Jesus by the well because he was so exhausted. They had gone to get food. And they would have normally, a Jew would never have gotten food from the Samaritans. Never. 
Uh, that was unclean. But this was very interesting that Jesus sent them away and they went and got food from the Samaritans and brought it back to him. Jesus cared nothing for tradition, nothing for culture. There were no lines for him. But they return from their mission to get lunch. They see Jesus sitting by the well and he's talking to a woman. Just then, that's the language there, just after Jesus declared to this woman who he was, the disciples just happened to show up. A little more divine providence. They are shocked at what they see because remember, the, the Jews, they didn't talk to Samaritans, much less a Samaritan woman. But they don't ask Jesus, you know, why are you talking to her? What are you doing? Now, we don't know why they didn't ask him. There was the honor and respect that uh, you, would, you would show toward a teacher, but many commentators mentioned that the disciples probably had learned to trust Jesus at this point and not to question him. Verse 27, verse 28, excuse me. So the woman left her water pot and went into the city and said to the men, come, see a man who told me all the things that I have done. This is not the Christ, is it? The disciples come, they, they sit down, talk to Jesus. This woman leaves her water pot. She heads into the city and goes right to the men of the city. Now, we don't know why she left her water pot. Um, a lot of speculation about that. Maybe she thought it would slow her down. Uh, maybe she was so excited she just forgot it. Or maybe she realized that her spiritual thirst was more important than her physical thirst. And her spiritual thirst had now been satisfied by this man who was the Messiah. That might be reading into it a little bit too much, but I'd like to think that's the case. I do think that we can assume that she believed in Jesus at that moment. When Jesus told her who he was, she wasn't like, eh. No, she believed it. She believed it. And we can assume that this is the case because of what she does. After talking to Jesus, the first thing she does instinctively is this. I have to tell others about this man. And so she takes off, leaves behind her water pot, heads directly into the city to find the men of the city. And this, this could be a, word, a collective word for the people. Um, but if, if this is men, regardless, this would be a strange occurrence, right? Because this woman avoided people. And she avoided the women, much less the men. But now she has forgotten all of the social stigma that was attached to her. She doesn't care. She leaves her water pot. She takes off. She goes right to the city to tell the people about this man that she just met. Verse 29, come, see a man who told me all the things that I have done. This could not be the Christ, is it? I mean, the, the people of the, of the city, they would have known about this woman's sin. It was notorious. Everybody knew about this woman. He knew who she was. Everyone knew about her sin. And then some unknown stranger comes into town and tells her everything about her, all her sordid history. That would have piqued their interest. And, and she is urging them, come now, come see him. Is this not the heart of evangelism? Is this not our calling to, to declare to others who Jesus is? Come see who Jesus is. The woman is doing exactly what the apostles did back in chapter one. <laughs> this is the heart of belief. Andrew comes to Peter and says, we found the Messiah. 
Philip comes to Nathaniel and he says, we have found the one that Moses wrote about. And Nathaniel then asks a cynical question. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip says to him, come and see. Come see this man and see for yourself. That's how the believing Jews responded to Jesus. And that's the same that this believing Samaritan woman, this is how she is responding as well to him. Verse 29, this is not the Christ, is it? Could this truly be the Messiah? Now, she's a witness of the Messiah, but now she's planting that thought in their minds as well. I think she's convinced of who Jesus was, but, but she wants them to determine for themselves. And there is a lot of wisdom in her approach, right? Think about who this woman is, the fact that she is a woman, and she's a notorious woman. If she had burst into the room saying, hey, I found the Messiah, come see him. They would have laughed at her. They would have mocked her. But she's appealing to their authority here. She's saying to them, come, make an assessment of this man who told me my entire life. Is it possible, based on your examination, that this is the Christ? She must have been persuasive because verse 30 says, they went out of the city and were coming to him. They decided to see for themselves who this man was. That brings us to the fourth dramatic scene in this account, and that is the Enlightenment. The Enlightenment. Look at verse 31. Meanwhile, while, while the woman was declaring to the townspeople about this man, meanwhile, the disciples were urging Jesus, saying, Rabbi, eat. It may have been that when the disciples came to Jesus, he, he was obviously preoccupied talking to this woman, and, and apparently he was just sitting there deep in thought. He said to them, I have food to eat that you don't even know about. Verse 33, so the disciples were saying to one another, no one brought him anything to eat, did he? This is so typical in the Gospels. Jesus is talking about spiritual and eternal realities, and the disciples are thinking earthly and temporal. But what drives Jesus? What sustains our Lord? Verse 34. Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Jesus was completely committed to doing the will of the Father. He was the prophet who had been sent into the world. He was sent to reveal God to the world and he was concerned for the souls of the lost. He was so concerned that it drove him to the cross. Are we driven by the same thing that drives Jesus? Are we concerned about kingdom work? Are we primarily concerned about souls? Or are we sometimes like the disciples with our minds preoccupied with earthly things? Jesus came to do the will of the Father, and that is what drove him every moment he walked this earth. In verse 35, Jesus expresses what the, the, the disciples' main concern should have been. Verse 35, do you not say, there are yet four months and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields, that they are white for harvest. Now there's some question as to what this is. Uh, this could be referring to the time uh, of that, that was going on when this account occurred. 
Uh, perhaps it was four months before the harvest time. And when the grain was ready to harvest, it became white. But if this is the case, and it was still four months to go, uh, the, the fields would have been green. So he could be being literal here, but it also could be proverbial. Don't you all say, right, this was a, a known idiom at that time, don't you all say, yet four months and then comes the harvest? Doesn't the harvest time come four months after the farmer sows his seed? You guys say this all the time. But I'm telling you that the harvest is happening right now. The spiritual harvest of souls is at hand. Verse 35. Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields, that they are white for harvest. Now, while they are staring at the, at the green fields, if that is the proper understanding, then, then as Jesus was telling his disciples these things, it could be that they could see the Samaritans coming up out of the city. And the type of dress that people wore back then was white robes. That would mean that amidst a backdrop of green fields, the white spiritual field of souls was coming toward them. And who cares about physical food at a time like that? Verse 36, already he who reaps is receiving wages and is gathering fruit for life eternal, so that he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. For in this case, the saying is true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you have not labored. Others have labored and you've entered into that labor. Jesus here is continuing the agricultural metaphor, right? In farming, the farmer sows the seed first and then comes the reaping. That comes later. But now, when Jesus is here, spiritual sowing and reaping come together. The one who sows, the one who reaps, they rejoice together. In spiritual sowing and reaping, the crop is souls and the reward is eternal. And the crop is ready to be reap, reaped. It is, it is ripe. Now, Jesus may be pressing his disciples on the urgency of the task here. You, you cannot be lazy and wait around when there's souls at stake. Others have been doing the hard work of sowing the truth. We don't know who's doing the sowing here, Jesus is referring to. It could be the prophets. Uh, it could be John the Baptist. Could refer to Jesus. It could even refer to this Samaritan woman who had been faithful to tell them the truth. Whatever it was, the disciples are about to share the bounty of reaping a spiritual harvest, even though they hadn't done any of the work of sowing the seed. Now, this may be also an eschatological reference back to Amos 9.13. There's a few other places that talk about uh, the reaper overtaking the sower because there will be such an abundance. Uh, in the millennial kingdom, this, this could be uh, a bounty of physical food on the earth. The earth is going to give forth its plenty as Jesus rules over the earth from Jerusalem. But even now, with the inauguration of Jesus' first coming, there is an abundant spiritual harvest available. We must be sensitive to the fact that there is always spiritual work to be done. Let's also remember that there are sowers and reapers. Sometimes you will be planting the seeds of truth in people's hearts for years and not see the fruit of it. You won't see that harvest get reaped. Someone else may come along and those seeds of truth have then taken root and then they get reaped. Spiritual life has come to that soul. But regardless of what we see, we must be faithful sowers of God's truth 
and trust that he's going to use it for his glory, even if we don't see the fruit of it in our lifetime. Even if someone else gets the joy of seeing that person repent, you can rejoice at the fact that you've had the privilege of sowing the seeds of truth in their heart. Lastly, beginning in verse 39, we have our final dramatic scene that reveals the substance of genuine salvation, and that is the expression. Verse 39, from that city, many of the Samaritans believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified. He told me all the things that I had done. And so when the Samaritans came to Jesus, they were asking him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. Many more believed because of his word, and they were saying to the woman, it's no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this one is indeed the Savior of the world. Wow. This is the response from the Samaritans, the ones that the Jews despised. The chosen people of God despised these people. And look at the testimony. Notice first that they believed because of the word of the woman who testified. The Samaritan woman who was an outcast had now become a soul winner. Jesus even stayed there two days and he may have told them the truth about who he was, explained the word of God to them, told them about the father. And after those two days, many more, verse 41, believed because of his word. It's a lot of reaping being done. And they were saying to the woman, it's no longer because of what you said that we believe. For we have heard for ourselves and know that this one is indeed the savior of the world. Jesus cared for those who were outcasts, for the despised. And they got saved. Why? Because he's the savior of the world. What had been declared in John 3.17 had been proven to be true. God did not send his son into the world to judge the world, but that the world through him might be saved. And the Samaritans were the fruit of that. Jesus is indeed the Messiah. He is the Son of God. He is the true temple. And he is the Savior of the world. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you. We thank you that we, we are not cast away from you. We thank you for how you have rescued us from our sin. We thank you, Lord, that you are indeed the Savior of the world, that you have allowed Gentiles to be a part of your redemptive plan. What an incredible thought. And we thank you because, Lord, many of us in this room are the fruit of that. We thank you, Lord, that the word has come even to us, just as it did to that outcast Samaritan woman. We thank you, Lord, that your concern is for souls. Let that be our concern as well. And we thank you, Lord, that we can now worship you in spirit and truth because you have brought life to our souls through the Holy Spirit. Let us live a life of holiness. Let us live a life of evangelism, proclaiming your truth to the lost. And we thank you, Lord, for how your word is so clear and brings us back to where we need to be doing. We pray this all in Jesus' name, amen.